Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm editor Candace Gibson, joined by writer Jane McGrath. Hey there, Candace. Hey, Jane. You are a huge movie buff, and I am not as big a buff as you. I'm actually uh, a little bit too hyper, really, to sit, <laughs> sit still and watch a movie from beginning to end. But you've written this fantastic article about 10 historically inaccurate movies. And just to give all of our listeners a little bit of background, when How Stuff Works... Editors and writers come up with topics for articles. We send out what we call an initial approach. And it's just a mass email that asks for people's suggestions. And every now and then, there will be a topic that comes along that gets people emailing back and forth like crazy. And this was one of them. And this was one of them. Jane had responses coming in until like, gosh, I think 6 o'clock at night. (laughs) And she sent the IA out at Eight something in the morning. And at that point, you know, case closed. She had picked the top ten she wanted to work with. And people were so excited. They were hammering her with requests. That's right. And it's interesting. Yeah, you, you mentioned I am a, a movie buff. And uh, that's one of the reasons I think I am really interested in history. I don't know. Like, I might be showing my impressionable age when I say this. But when I grew up watching uh, the Indiana Jones movies, for instance, um, it really got me interested in, you know, the Nazis and even, like, ancient and, and biblical history as well. And I think I think that was really a drive that got me interested in history. And that's one point that a lot of, um, or at least some historians make, is that even though films can be really, really egregiously historically inaccurate, historians give filmmakers credit for at least, you know, sparking interest in history so that if you want to know the whole story, you can look it up yourself. That's true. And I think that there are historical purists among movie audiences who want to see every single detail follow to the letter. And sometimes, you know, that's that's a pretty tall order. And a film that isn't exactly historical film by nature, but one that I really enjoy and have seen from beginning to end several times through, is Almost Famous. And the director of that movie, Cameron Crowe, wanted so much for his film to be accurate that he hired on Peter Frampton to be an authenticity director. Well. So all of these details in the movie are, you know, really telling of, you know, the, the era and the musical scene at that time. And Frampton actually makes a small appearance in a scene where he and some other band managers are, are gambling. But <laughs> on the opposite end, you look at movies that are like um, literary dramas, for instance, that are period pieces. Gone with the Wind. Or- Gone with the Wind, or even, you know, the, the BBC miniseries on different Austin novels and things like that. And we see that these films can end up being hours upon hours long because people are trying to be so true to the story in the book. Um, Brideshead Revisited, for instance, is one that just came out. And I think that there was a, a BBC miniseries based on the book that was 11 episodes long yeah. versus the movie theater production of 2008, which was and just you can you can guess which hours. one purists like, you know. <laughs> well, and, and I don't know, because... Ultimately, it comes down to how the screenwriter wants to portray the book, and editors have to make very careful decisions about how to portray the narrative. And that's what gets historians rivaled up, is Mm -hmm. when not necessarily creative license is taken with, you know, the, the art direction or how a person looks but how the story is told. Yeah, and you can you can easily end up ruining a historical person's reputation. 
of today. You know? Precisely. So with that in mind, we're going to talk about some real doozies. One of the first ones uh, Candace is going to talk about in particular, and that was Pocahontas. And this one you have to tell me about, Candace, because I have never seen it. Believe it or not, uh, when I was growing up, my dad had forbade me from seeing it because it was so historically inaccurate. So please, please tell us about it. And I just admitted to Jane that I was, oh gosh, this is 1995 when Pocahontas came out. So I think I was like 10 or 11 years old at that point, And I saved up all my babysitting money to go see this film in the theater. Oh. Not once, not twice, but five times. I was crazy about Disney's Pocahontas. And this is definitely one where the narrative has been skewed in the interest of keeping the audience uh, engaged. And most notably is the fact that it sort of revolves around a, a budding romance between Pocahontas, a Native American girl, and uh, John Smith, who, of course, is the, the British explorer who comes over to scout out this potential colony. And we see as, you know, he becomes more entrenched in Native American culture, and she is trying to teach him, you know, the ways of life here and how one can't just come over and assert one's cultural values into a land that one wishes to claim. Uh, they fall in love. And ultimately, the story climaxes when John Smith is going to be put to death and Pocahontas throws herself on top of him. And there's this, you know, very dramatic, you know, she's still a cartoon, but scene. I think her hair is waving. She's like, no, no, you can't do this. And mm-hmm. it's great, except it's, you know, all a bunch of crock <laughs> because Pocahontas would have only been like myself when I saw the film, about 10 or 11. Hmm. And so John Smith was was much older. There was never any romantic interest between them. And Pocahontas ended up marrying another British explorer who was actually more in the role of a, a diplomat than anything else, and that was John Rolfe. Okay. And if you, like me, kept up with Disney's Pocahontas and saw the uh, straight-to-DVD Pocahontas <laughs> 2, Journey to a New World, you know that Disney tried to redeem itself a little bit by ending the Pocahontas story on a true note, where she chooses John Rolfe over John Smith. Oh, that's really interesting. I have a little bit more respect for them now. Well, there you go. Like I said, critics were incensed because here's this historical story being painted, um, no pun intended, painted in in many wrong ways, and um, children are going to have to go back and relearn the, the real tale in school, and it was just sort of a... Pandora's box of problems. That's true. And another one that I address in the article is a, is, a, is another one having to do with a Native American girl and a white explorer. And that was a kind of a lesser known movie back in the 50s called The Far Horizons. And that dealt with the Lewis and Clark expedition, uh, which you've talked about before. And on this voyage, obviously, we all know anyone who's at all familiar with the voyage, they know that they picked up Sacagawea on the way and she ended up being a great help to to the whole expedition. But in the movie, in these in this fifties movie, I love how they the their choice for Sacagawea was uh Donna Reed. <laughs> nice. Which of course you know from you know, she's the whitest uh fifties housewife you've ever seen. And she uh she plays the uh, Native American girl who falls in love with William Clark, which is a little curious because in actuality she was very visibly pregnant when they picked her up and um, had her join with her husband, uh, John Pap-ti- Baptiste uh, Charbonneau, I believe it's pronounced. So he was there as, uh, on the expedition as well. So I don't think there are any sparks going off between uh, William Clark and Sacagawea. No, and from what I understand, 
Charbonneau and Sacagawea were sort of a, a twofer, to borrow the uh, Clinton's yeah. language there. They didn't pick up Sacagawea to be their guide. They picked up Charbonneau, and his wife just happened to come along because she was, impreg- she was pregnant at the time, and she knew quite a lot about the lands they were traveling through and the people who they encountered. So she turned out to be an even greater help than her husband. And furthermore, in the movie, Charbonneau is portrayed as a villain that Clark and uh, Lewis are up against. But in reality, that wasn't the story at all. Yeah, that's true. Uh, Charbonneau was always a help to them. And, you know, he did what he was hired to do. And he helped them with translating and everything like that. So I don't think Clark would have double-crossed him by stealing his wife. Not quite. Another movie that is, I think, is the whopper in this list is uh, The Bridge on the River Kwai, which, I'm not going to lie, I love the movie. I think it's fantastic. Um, and if you haven't seen it, you definitely should. It has uh, Alec Guinness in it, and he plays this British commander, uh, Colonel Nicholson. So Nicholson is fighting in World War II. He's captured by the Japanese. He's brought into a POW camp, and he's the highest-ranking Allied officer there. And so at this camp, they're having the uh, the Allied forces who are prisoner there they're building a bridge for the Japanese to help them in their military campaigns. The Japanese are forcing uh, the Allied tr- troops to help build this bridge, and Nicholson comes along, and he, uh, he actually becomes obsessed with building the bridge. He wants to make the best bridge possible. And he sort of just loses track of the idea. He's oddly oblivious to the fact that he's helping a, an enemy in war. And he's uh, he's just oblivious to the end. And I don't want to spoil the, uh, the ending for you, but it, you have to see it. In truth, uh, Nicholson is based on a real-life guy. His name is uh, Lieutenant Colonel Philip Tuzzi. And he was the highest-ranking Allied officer in this POW camp in the Pacific that was charged with building the Thai-Burma Railway. And people who saw the movie see it as sort of a slap in the face to the real-life Tuzi because it's true, Tuzi was forced to help build this bridge, and he was obsessed. But he wasn't obsessed with building a good bridge. He was obsessed with keeping his men alive. Right, and big he, distinction. Yeah, he was he was a real hero to a lot of, of people. His granddaughter actually wrote a well-acclaimed book on on his life and what he did. And even though he did end up having to help build the bridge, he did his best to, you know, put in a little sabotage where he could, such as like what they would do, they would get some white ants and they would put them in the wood of the bridge to try to get it, get them to eat it from the inside. And he would also mix the concrete badly. So hopefully it would crumble and he would see his, his uh, men get random beatings and he would step, he would step in and he would get beaten as a result. And so this great hero of the war is sort of like his reputation is tarnished by this odd, you know, obsessive uh, Alec Guinness character in the, in the movie. So um, a lot of people were upset about that. And Alec Guinness actually got an Oscar award or just the nomination? I think he won that year. year. Yeah, and so it was a big movie. Yeah, and so when when people win awards for their portrayals of historical figures, it sort of cements, I think, in the public's mind that this is somehow more authentic or it carries a a heavier weight in some way. Yeah, And I wonder sometimes, you know, films come to the theaters and if it's something to the the grand scale of Pearl Harbor, where, you know, it's a pretty significant event in American history and it carries a, a really heavy cultural impact, I think sometimes people feel obligated to go see it and maybe even want to take it for what it's worth. But 
you can never discount dramatic effect and what filmmakers do to make a bigger punch on the silver screen. And I think that the ending of this one in particular is mm-hmm. just, it's so laughably wrong. FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, rises from his chair <laughs> at the very end of the film, and that would have been completely impossible for him. Yeah, I think my favorite from Pearl Harbor is the fact that they they have one of the Japanese admirals um, saying a, or, uh, a line from an earlier movie. It was a completely fabricated line from Tora, 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 which is a famous movie about Pearl Harbor. And uh, and so it's, to have both movies say it makes it seem like, oh, this must be true. People, you know, they must have said the sleeping giant line about America when it was really, it was, it stayed true to a Hollywood, at least, if not history. Right. And I think you can see some historical films like Shakespeare in Love, which is another one that made Jane's List, that sort of winkingly acknowledge false bits of history and anachronistic details. And Mm. not just in the way that a movie like A Knight's Tale would incorporate music that was clearly many, many, many years coming. Yeah, I don't think anybody's (laughs) walking away from Knight's Tale thinking that they actually sang Queen songs. Yeah, or, oh, he was around, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so, and I think another point to be made about this is that it's hard to make a movie that really is historically accurate, not only in the details, like what they wear and everything, but the, I think the moral ambiguities going on in history, I mean, we face them all the time when we talk about them in the podcast, how, how like these difficult choices that people had to make. And you look at someone like Tuzi who had to aid, you know, the enemy at war. And when you make a movie, it's much, it's much simpler and it makes for a better story to make things black and white. Definitely. And at least in some of the older historical films that are on your list, I think it would have been an even more complicated process of showing a multifaceted, political figure or historical figure. And in today's cinema, I think that there's much more to be said about the subtleties of filmography and the way that light can betray some sort of expression that's just fleeting on a character's face Mm -hmm. or a very, you know, subtle movement or or detail can tip off the audience that something isn't quite right. But films haven't always worked that way. You know, if you think back to Tora, 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 for instance, well, for one, it was black and white. And secondly, it was very much done in in the style of old cinematography. And you don't have room for subtleties. And I think the public has gotten a lot more into, or Hollywood, I should say, has really embraced uh, going after more subtleties, more, uh, you know, morally grays. And uh, it's become more popular. You get more tickets when, when it is something that's sort of shady and you don't really know what's right and wrong. Yeah. So we see, for instance, represented at the very recent Academy Awards and maybe like Frost Nixon, where, you mm-hmm. know, these, these two sort of grainy, gritty characters are explored for the world to see. You know, we're not just celebrating, you know, famous historical personages of the past. We're really trying to explore what the morals and motivations must have been of some pretty unethical people of the past. That's true. So a lot out there for you to see, whether you want to see a great figure celebrated, like, oh, I don't know, Thomas Jefferson, or <laughs> or you want to see Richard Nick- Nixon's psyche explored. Um, there's so many more movies in Jane's List that we can't cover, so you're going to have to go read the article yourself. And while you're there, also check out the blogs that the site is launching. Uh, Stuff You Missed in History Class has its own blog written by Candace and myself, and we write about um, all different kinds of stuff every day, and we'd love to hear from you, from your comments, and answer your questions there if we can. Or you can email us, as always, at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 